I'm going to open by reading to you a passage of Scripture, one that I know everyone in this room is going to be familiar with. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Why do you worry then about clothing? Considering the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the nations seek but your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This passage seems to juxtapose two things, almost that to seek the kingdom of God is then to come into conflict with how it is that we're going to get along in this world. That's what the passage seems to suggest. It says, if we make this priority of seeking first God's kingdom, the first tension point and conflict we're going to feel is how are we going to clothe, feed, shelter, take care of ourselves. Now, to me, that says that potentially the kingdom of God is going to be in a place of hostility compared to the kingdoms of this world that they're going to be in tension with one another, that one might even be trying to price out the other, so that if you want to be seeking first the kingdom of God, you're going to feel as though there's an inability to do so if your rational mind is the one doing the calculations. Does everyone follow? While many in this room might not know this, um, I think most will know this name. How many of you know George Mueller? Okay, so it looks like most in the room know, know who George Mueller is. If there's one word that came to mind when you thought of George Mueller, what would be that word? Well, hallelujah. <laughs> but that wasn't the one I was thinking. <laughs> Sounds like some of you have read his biography or autobiography. What would be the other word that would come to mind? Orphans. Okay. So, how many um, know that George Mueller did not start an orphanage because his primary burden was about orphans? Yeah. His primary burden was different than that. His burden was, will God find faith on the earth when he returns? Can I read you some of his words? I constantly had cases brought before me which proved that one of the special things which the children of God needed in our day was to have their faith strengthened. For instance, I might visit a brother who worked 14 or even 16 hours a day at his trade. The necessary result, which was not only that his body suffered, but his soul was lean and he had no enjoyment in the things of God. Under such circumstance, I might point out to him that he ought to work less in order that his bodily health might not suffer 
and that he might gather strength for his inner man by reading the word of God or by meditation over it and by prayer. The reply, however, I generally found to be something like this. But if I work less, I do not earn enough to support my family. Even now, whilst I work so much, I have scarcely enough. The wages are low, and I must work hard in order to obtain what I need. There was no trust in God, no real belief in his word. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The brother would allow that it was so. He would allow that my advice was good. But still I read in his countenance, even if he should not have actually said so, how should I get on if I were to carry out your advice? I long, therefore, to have something to point this brother to, a visible proof that our God and Father is the same faithful God as he ever was, as willing as ever to prove himself to be the living God in our day as in former days, to all who would put their trust in him. Again, sometimes I found children of God tried in mind by the prospect of old age when they might be unable to work any longer and therefore were harassed by the fear of having to go into the poorhouse. Another class of persons were brethren in business who suffered in their soul and brought guilt on their conscience by carrying on their business almost in the same way as the unconverted world. The competition and trade, the bad times, the over-peopled country were given as reasons why. If the business were to carry on simply according to the word of God, it could not be expected to do well. Such a brother perhaps would express the wish that he might be differently situated, but very rarely did I see that there was a stand made for him, that there was the holy determination to trust in the living God and to depend on him in order that a good conscience might be maintained. Then there was another class of persons, individuals who were in profession which they could not continue with a good conscience, or persons who were in an unscriptural position with reference to spiritual things, but both cases feared on account of the consequences to give up the profession in which they could not abide with God or to leave their position lest they should be thrown out of their employment. The fact that so many believers with whom I became acquainted were harassed and distressed in mind or brought guilt on their conscience on account of not trusting the Lord were used by God to awaken my heart to the desire of setting before the church at large and before the world a proof that he was not in the least changed and this seemed to me to be best done by establishing an orphan house. It needed to be something which could be seen, even by the natural eye. Now if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, obtained without asking a single individual the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, there would be something which the Lord's blessing might be instrumental in strengthening, reviving the faith of the children of God. Besides being a testimony to the consciences of the unconverted of the reality, of the things of God. This then was the primary reason I established this orphan house. He was burdened to see that there were new obstacles in the land of promise. God's people had been led out of the house of sin and bondage just as so many today experience a powerful encounter with God. But then the next steps to keep going 
into God's design and to God's purpose are steps that require a deeper level of trust and of faith. Those steps cause us to feel the places of comfort that we've used to protect deep insecurities. And when we feel that anxiety, we feel the temptation to shrink back, to not move forward in faith. And so George Mueller, he just looked across Bristol, England there. He saw all the orphan children and it grieved his heart. But what grieved his heart more, do you see the parallel? What grieved his heart more is that God's people were acting like those orphans. They were acting as though they did not have a heavenly father who could provide for them. And he wanted to prove that with two pences to his name, God could feed, house, and clothe thousands of children to those who would believe. It was a Father Abraham moment, wasn't it? <laughs> okay. George Mueller was burdened that faith would not be found on the earth. He was burdened that God's people would not trust him, but rather place their trust upon an economic system. I feel the battle he waged was not just for his day, but rather has roots going much further back. Roots I would like to draw out as we study what is at stake in the good fight of faith. Today's seminar will look at how the systems of men are formed on the earth. Is it an accidental arrangement? following no logical sequence? Is it trial and error with randomness in our solutions and unpredictability as our final end? Or is it rather predictable? Is it rather an outworking that is consistent based upon the costly decisions that man has made in his heart? Does the unseen world of ideas, perspectives, and attitudes found deep inside of man shape the visible world he creates? If that is true, does our way of life become the ultimate battleground for the life of faith? Do we need to prove in our day as much as in any other that we can seek first the kingdom of God? The opening chapters of the Bible lay out the loss of paradise and the introduction of wilderness. The start of man's beginnings is a place of perfect harmony a perfect arrangement of all parts and beauty and order. This perfection was brought about by God's word, a perfect design held in God's heart that when he spoke brought this design into visible form. With this word, he precisely defined relationships that would bring enduring life. Relationships with seeds, plants, trees, animals, birds, light, water, man to woman, and most importantly, man unto God. This word cannot be broken and is the basis for all life. It was perfect and it brought forth perfection. Man is further given a word that situates him within all that God has created. He is to cultivate and to keep life to take over the family business, so to speak, of bringing harmony and beauty to all of God's creation so that his Father's glory would fill the whole earth. You all remember this account? 
The Spirit of God hovered over waters that were chaotic, and, and then he began to draw them together into an order and design and beauty by his word coming forth. And that word defined all relationships. That word then brought forth enduring patterns for life. And then man was situated within that beauty, within that order and design as one who would be his son, as an image bearer. And then he would take his relationship with his father, his relationship with one another, and his relationship in the context of God's creative design to bring forth the glory or the radiant reputation of God unto all the earth. It's a beautiful design. It's something that we look at and we, I think every heart longs for in some type of restoration to what they feel things were supposed to be. I don't know anyone that doesn't feel that way inside. And the reason why we feel that way is because our beginnings were marked by perfection and by a perfect word and by a perfect father that could be trusted. In the garden, man is told that if he were to break this word and change his relationship with God, then he would die. What poison, we might ask, was inherent in that forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve ate? We know it did not bring about instantaneous death, and yet it violated some code that God had written that ordered all of life. I would submit today that the poison that Adam and Eve ingested that day was in the form of a lying word. A word not based in truth, but in deceit. A contrary word that would shape a different reality, a wilderness. That would take God's perfect plan and perfect expression and bring a distortion of his design that would ultimately be unrecognizable from its beginnings. A seed is a nutrient-rich embryo containing all of the code that brings the telos or design of that seed to full expression. So a seed, though tiny in form, has all the code already written into it that is going to bring about its full expression. Plants and animals at a seed level have the same DNA code they will have the rest of their lives. This DNA code is exhaustive and is contained in every cell of an organism. To give a sense, the DNA in each cell of the human body, if stretched out, would be six feet in length. So you take one cell in your body and you find the DNA code written in that and it's folded on top of one another and you were to stretch it all out and it's going to be six feet in length. There's a hundred trillion cells in the human body, somewhere like that. I guess someone's still counting that. I mean, I don't know what's going on there, but um, they say that. A uh, hundred trillion cells, that one moved. Did I count that one? I don't know. The hundred trillion cells contained in the human body would then amount to our DNA code being the distance from the earth to the sun several hundred times. If that is not amazing in and of itself, you'll remember me in a month's time because a pine tree or this year's Christmas tree has seven times the DNA code in its seed than the human genome. A story is written within a seed. A story with words that stretch to the sun and back many times over. A seed does come in a small package, but it comes pregnant with an unfolding design. DNA is not the only place that we observe order or design 
to the patterns of life. As one observer has said, the Fibonacci numbers appear everywhere in nature. From leaf arrangements and plants to the patterns of the florets of a flower, the bracts of a pine cone, the branching system of a tree, the flight pattern of a bird of prey, the spiral of a hurricane, our facial proportions, and the scales of a pineapple. Fibonacci numbers are therefore applicable to the growth of every living thing, including a single cell, a grain of wheat, a hive of bees, and even all of humankind. We say all of humankind because I'll just use a DNA again, but if you stretched a full DNA in one strand and you were to measure it, it'd be 31 angstroms in height and 20, 34 angstroms in height and 21 in width. And that is a Fibonacci number. Um, those are two Fibonacci numbers. And the ratio of those numbers, if you divide them, gives you the golden ratio, the number we have for pi. Another number that finds itself all over living things. Now, what is a Fibonacci number? Because we don't want to get lost here. It's actually not that complicated. It seems kind of complicated based on all that, but it's really not. A Fibonacci number is a pattern. It's a pattern that follows like this. The two preceding numbers in its pattern determine the next number in the, in the sequence. So we'll just test everyone. Here's the first two numbers of Fibonacci, one and one. What's our next number in the sequence? Okay, our next one is one and two. What's our next number in the sequence? Two and three, what's our next number in the sequence? Okay, does everyone follow? Okay. It's a simple repeating pattern, a pattern built into the very cosmos. Each number is the sum of the two numbers that precede it. If Fibonacci numbers were communicating the truth and their ubiquitous occurrence amongst all living things, it would be the law of reaping and sowing. Each new number in the sequence is a sum of the two prior occurrences. So the sum of the decisions behind us is what sets a course for what lies ahead with ever-increasing measure and consequence. You see the sowing and reaping that is built into this. The decisions behind us is what is shaping our future with increasing measure and consequence. The shared root with the word in Hebrew for tomorrow is to look back. I suppose that means they had already figured this out. <laughs> and what I mean by that is when they're looking to the future of tomorrow... The shared root for that word tomorrow is to look backwards. You want to know what is ahead? Look at what you have sown behind. That's the indication. So going back to our question at hand, are there decisions so foundational to man's very existence that if answered one way, it shapes a whole world of network a whole world of relationships. Is man's story written before the last word is typed just based on certain decisions he's made in his heart? Is everyone tracking so far? 
Are their decisions so foundational that they could be like we would describe a seed? The entire code already written in that decision, once you make it, once it's accepted in the heart, it's going to tell an entire story. The Bible retells the same crossroads in individuals and nations time and time again. Will man be manipulated by his fear of death to transgress trust and true relationships? Or will man lay down his life and become an example of one who completely trusts himself unto God and so draw other men back to the tree of life? Distrust of God at its root breeds self-interest. Let me just tease this out for a minute. As soon as we decide we cannot trust ourselves to another, to one who has formed us, to one who loved us, to one who has wisdom that we need, one who has life that we need, one that has instruction that we need, one that has love that we most desperately need. As soon as we decide we cannot trust that, but instead we must secure life for ourselves. As soon as we do that, we introduce self-interest into the world. We now feel a vulnerability because we are disconnected from right relationship to God. And that vulnerability has to be answered somehow. And the way that we answer that is we answer it through a corner of our heart that's going to grow in size that gets dedicated towards self-interest. But as soon as self-interest is there, it has a chain reaction effect on relationships. I know Brother Tory pretty well. And when I look at him, I trust him, and I hope that he trusts me. But I'll tell you, if I knew some truth, if I knew something that Brother Tory had done, it was just even silly. But I knew that he did, and I called him out on it. And I saw him take the normal gaze that he would give me of an open eye, and instead shift his eyes to his feet and, and tell me, no, 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 that didn't happen, that wasn't true. If the building block of a society was based upon that trust staying intact, that one moment in which I see, uh-oh, Tory has decided that he's going to need to cater to self-interest, that means if there's others just like him out there, I'm going to need to probably take care of myself at some measure too here. And that's going to start forming some area of the heart that's dedicated towards managing those fears and anxieties. That's going to start to build a whole network of relationships. Do you see that? We are remarkably intuitive beings. We perceive things like this. We understand it. It greatly disappoints us, and we feel like we are going to have to give ourselves to love in order to be changed and yet to do so would to be vulnerable and to be vulnerable to what we know to be a cancer inside of every person we've ever met that when push comes to shove and things get difficult they're going to choose themselves I'll tell you a network of relating like that does that sound like a wilderness or an Eden Sounds like a wilderness to me. 
Self-interest attempts the impossible task of making yourself the center of all things. This chaotic arrangement of life brings a ruin to the song of creation, and it accelerates anxiety, fear, and vulnerability. Nothing orbits the way it is supposed to with you at the center, but instead a man-centered world where he is procuring life apart from a trusting relationship with God loses the reference points of God's original wisdom. I won't tell my testimony here, but I just had a troubled upbringing and decided at eighth grade that I was not going to trust people. <laughs> and I was going to form a wall around that type of relationship of trust. And I would do that through drugs and violence and different things like that because I was not okay with the way people were treating one another. And I just could not think that I would get along in this world if I continued to open my heart in such ways. And so I made an active decision. I mean it. At eighth grade, I'm creating an alter ego. <laughs> I'm creating a different personality. I mean, some people maybe don't think about it in that way. I thought about it in that way. <laughs> I said, this is what I'm doing. This will be my project, and this will keep me from the pain that I feel. The thing that changed my life was hearing a word from God. I will be a father to the fatherless. I will not leave you, and I will not forsake you. And I knew that everything was going to be different. And when I woke up the next morning, the grass was greener, the sky was bluer. It was like I never tasted food in my entire life. I was in that weird collision course of putting myself at the center. And nothing orbited the right way. Everything was just misery. Everything was just disaster and brokenness. But as soon as I put God, my Father, at the center of it all and came into orbit around Him, enduring patterns of life started to come. Joy started to come. Change started to come. Trust was healing me. Trust was changing me. Inherent in the seed of distrust is the bondage to self-preservation. If this is not answered, then the seed of fear, even though it is small, will socially, economically, ecologically, and politically reflect a world where the underlying mechanism for all decision-making is based in self-interest. Romans 8 links our decision between the spirit of fear by which we shrink back into bondage and the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, with the longing of creation. What was in the apostle's mind when he linked those things? And that's an interesting thing, isn't it? He's talking about we didn't receive this spirit of fear by which we go back into bondage and slavery. Now we know that perfect love casts out all fear. So somehow coming into this trusting relationship of the love of God casts out all fear. But if we don't do that, we're underneath some type of tyranny, some type of bondage. We have a fear over our own life 
and our own vulnerability. But it said you didn't receive that spirit. You received a spirit that told you you're adopted. You, you received a spirit that told you you belong to somebody, you know? And, and when you received that spirit, you cried out, Abba, Father. You said, Daddy. He says, creation was longing for that moment. Huh. Why is creation longing for the appointment of the sons of God? Why does creation want to see self-interest solved and man come back into this position of restoration, right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, and right relationship on the canvas of this earth? Man changing from a mentality of an orphan to one that is a child of God has inestimable ramifications. Think of the seed that we started at. Are certain decisions so foundational? If we change our mindset from an orphan to one that knows he's a child of God, does creation understand that something new is going to come on the earth if this actually happens in the heart of man? Are you telling me the seed has that story written in it of trust in God? That seed, if received in man's heart, will bring forth some new reality? So, some different world than the one we're in? Wow, do we even have that type of hope left in us <laughs> to believe in such grand things as that? If a kingdom is God's visible rule through a people indwelt by his spirit, perfectly living out his word in the song of creation, then it makes sense why Jesus says that one will need to deny himself and follow me in order to enter this kingdom. Self-interest will have to be resigned. Now, does this just mean that to follow Jesus, we need to decide to eat one less Twinkie? And if we do that, that's the self-denial he's looking for, and we get to enter his kingdom. Well, you all are laughing, so I'm thinking you don't think it's about Twinkies. <laughs> Isn't it about solving this fear we have? These fig leaves we've created? Isn't it about coming into a place of trust that's different? Something that would take us to the limits of ourselves. Something that would represent the full deposit of our security, of what we would consider to be life, and be willing to lay that down so as to be restored into right relationship with God again. When Jesus is saying, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying a death blow to self-interest is coming because the love of God is going to be revealed at Calvary. And man will no longer look at me with suspicion, but man will look at me with new trust. You could weep. <laughs> While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.
something gets so solved at that moment of love, doesn't it? Something gets so answered at that moment. It, it's like something is communicated to us that we didn't bring anything to this except for our failures. But he loves us. And our distrust of him has been misplaced. Our trust in ourselves has been misplaced. And finally, I feel this love could, could change that. It could reunite me back into a relationship with him. Let's take a closer look at man's approach to creation. Has the decision to trust God, his word, his kingdom, his design been worked out on the canvas of God's created world? Has his image bearers brought his glory to all of creation by cultivating and keeping life? Or has man sought to gain life and solve the problem of the curse through a different type of knowledge? One that is not relationally dependent upon God as a child, requires no trust, but has the certainty of its own inventions and calculations. Is man in the endless cycle of solving the problems that he himself is creating? If life is relationally based in God, then we would expect man to be a student of wisdom, discerning how things fit together within the specificity of God's design. Quoting from Brother Blair, he was quoting another man, E.F. Schumacher, who remarked various levels of being exist, purely physical existence such as that possessed by a rock, life such as that possessed by a plant, consciousness such as that possessed by an animal. And going beyond Schumacher's explanation, we would offer as a characteristic of the fourth level of being, the spiritual wisdom which sees, comprehends, ties together, and subsumes all relationships of all the other levels of being. If man is rejecting this relational way of knowing and instead confusing facts for truth and knowledge for wisdom, we would expect a grand engineering campaign to be underway, solving the riddle of death with disastrous consequences. Given that man, man's years are short and self-interest is a growing cancer, we would anticipate this folly to grow more frantic and imprudent. Using the metaphor of a song, man will either look to the composer and find his part in the score, or man will look at the notes on a page and decide he can configure them however he wishes without concern of consequence. We have no reason to think and I mean no biblical reason to think, that God suspended his original command for man to cultivate and keep life. I don't know why that hit me the other day, but it just did. We have no reason to think that God suspended his original command for man to cultivate and keep life. If things are going to hold together according to God's word, according to the specificity of his design, according to the relationships that he put into place, we have no reason to think that that word that situated us within his creation has changed. We are to cultivate and to keep life. 
And yet it is becoming increasingly obvious to any honest observer that we are not functioning under the paradigm of stewardship, but rather exploitation. I'd like to quote Wendell Berry here. The exploiter is a specialist, an expert. The nurturer is not. The standard of the exploiter is efficiency. The standard of the nurturer is care. The exploiter's goal is money, profit. The nurturer's goal is health, his land's health, his own, his families, his communities, his countries. Whereas the exploiter asks of a piece of land only how much and how quickly it can be made to product, the nurturer asks a question that is more complex and difficult. What is its carrying capacity? That is, how much can be taken from it without diminishing in it? What can it produce dependent, dependably for an indefinite period of time? The exploiter wishes to earn as much as possible by as little work as possible. The nurturer expects certainly to have a decent living from his work, but his characteristic wish is to work as well as possible. The competence of the exploiter is organization. That of the nurturer is order, a human order. That is, that accommodates itself both to other order and to mystery. The things he doesn't know. <laughs> the things that still will have to be revealed. The exploiter typically serves an institution or organization. The nurturer serves land, household, community, place. The exploiter thinks in terms of numbers, quantities, hard facts. The nurturer in terms of character. The nurturer is constantly thinking about how that decision doesn't just affect me right now, but how that decision affects things that are going to unfold down the road. If a great shoemaker, um, he, he, he can produce 10 of these per month, very high-quality shoes, and an economist comes to him and says, you know, these are great shoes, and you can do 10 of them, but I just would have you know that if you diminish quality but a bit, you could produce 20 of them. And the price that you would have to drop on the shoe would not be in half. So you would do 20, and you'd be doing it at 80% of the price that you're doing now if you just drop your quality just a little bit. If the man is seduced by the worldly wise men and his economic facts here, then that man will not have a shoe company to hand to his children two or three generations, nor will he have the character to hand to his children two or three generations. You see, when the man decides that that is a better rule than excellence, he's on his way to poverty. Excellence secures abundance, but this is a wisdom principle, not a man's fig leaf economy, not an economy based upon man trying to answer the insecurity of his own existence because he won't return into a place of trust in God. This language from Wendell Berry sounds to be like the language of economics, doesn't it? Hard facts, quantities, numbers. Does the DNA code of self-preservation also write the laws of economic policy on our hearts? What do you think? Are our economic incentives driven by a fig leaf attitude? 
Does our deep fears and insecurities of trusting in God inform how we relate to one another in our business dealings? Does God have a different rule of his house than what is taught by this world? One based more on cooperation than competition. One that is not interested in shortcuts, but in enduring patterns. One that understands that excellence is the only preserver of abundance and relationships are the true wealth of this world. I'm hearing some yeses. <laughs> I think we all do believe that, but we all do feel the tension, don't we? There's a straight route to the land of promise, but there's new strongholds in the way, and those strongholds are a way of life that seems impossible to navigate out of and still provide for our families. Do you remember in Psalm 78, it says that the children of Israel asked a question, will God be able to prepare a table for us in the wilderness? It said that this deeply grieved the heart of God. It said when he called Egypt out, he called a son, and he wanted to teach him his ways. It said he withheld bread from him, but not because he wanted to be harsh to him, but because he wanted him to learn that he was to live on every word that came forth from his mouth that this new way of trusting God was going to define their whole reality. Sandals that wouldn't wear out. Food that came down from the heavens. Walls that fell in on strongholds. Giants that got slain by shepherd boys. God wanted man to have a new place of trust. Now in that place of trust, did he want him to live on those sandals for the rest of their life? We don't think so. It was a provision. It was for a season. Did he want manna to come from heaven for the rest? No, he was leading him to a land flowing with milk and honey. But even when he led him to that land, even when all of their trust finally got them into that place of promise, did he want them to quit trusting him in that way now and just say, oh, look at all that our hands have gotten for us. We don't have to live this radical faith anymore. No, he, he actually built into the system a way of putting tension to all of that. In an agrarian economy, your best animal, the one with your top genetics, that's the one you're going to want to keep, isn't it? You'd want to breed that one to all your other animals so as to improve your flock or your herd, wouldn't you? And yet we're told to take that best one without blemish and go and offer it up to the Lord. But then how are we going to improve all of this? By trusting in me the same way you got here. Once out of every day of the week, I don't want you to do any business with any of the other nations or amongst yourselves. Well, if we're closed on Sunday, how will we possibly get along? We need to be open on Sunday. That's a whole day of spending, and most people have a work week Monday to Friday. And if they're not available on Sunday to spend their money in our stores, we will be an underperforming business. Well, I guess you're going to have to trust in God. Well, we'd actually like you to take one entire year every seven years and not exchange in any of this type of commerce. Yeah, but you don't understand. People build things on contracts, and, 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 and if they can't depend on us, they'll find a different supplier, and then, and then we'll be priced out. 
I guess you're going to have to trust. The entire system that he led his people into was still based in trust. Because if that's not healed inside of man, man will build under a different pattern. Distrust, fear, anxiety, these things will cause us to relate to one another in a way that brings wilderness and death time and time and time again. I'll comment briefly on slides, and then I want to finish with reading you all something that I think will illustrate everything I've shared here today. Unmet desires leads to idolatry. Man, if he's only satisfied in God, and God has made him uniquely to be satisfied in him, then once he severs that relationship from God and won't trust him, he still has this gaping hole inside of his heart that needs to be satisfied. And those unmet desires, well, they present a vulnerability to his heart. It says in Psalm 125, the one who trusts in God is like Mount Zion, and he shall not be moved. It says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So it says, trust makes us so like we have a wall around us with no breach. When we have that complete trust in God, that's the way that we are. We, uh, Jesus said that the devil comes, but he finds no inroads into me. He finds no access points, no breaches in the wall, because my trust is completely in the Father. But that same wall can be established when man comes back into right relationship, but it's equally true that the vulnerability to man is present when that trust has not been secured in the heart. He has walls that are down, that make him vulnerable to other appeals of how he's going to live his life. And because God is infinite in being, we're made in such a way that only Him can be the right fulfillment of our desire. Our desire from God was made to be without end, but only because He would be the focus of that desire. We would be filled to the brim as we experience Him, and yet still wanting more, and that would be a wonderful arrangement because we would never find the end of Him. So it would be unending joy and unending discovery for man if he's in right relationship. If he's not in right relationship, he still has the same excess inside of him. The same thing that's going to say one Twinkie is good. I can't imagine 20 is not better. So now all of a sudden in food, drugs, relationships, everything. Everything starts to lose its boundary and definition because excess is pushing past. Excess is pushing past. No one has the restraint in them because they don't know how to satisfy that longing. This causes us to go to the world and start to misuse it because we have this insatiable appetite. We don't know how to deal with it. And one that has conquered it in food will find it in another place. The heart is an idol factory. And the th unique thing about the heart as an idol factory is it doesn't really care the inputs. You want to take religious inputs? Oh, it'll build a very pious image of itself that everyone can marvel at. If you want to give it toxic inputs, it will build an idol factory around some of the things that destroy man's body and soul. 
It does not care what it gets. It will produce something that will harm us and ultimately fragment us as a people until trust is dealt with. And so we see that the ancient paganism and idolatry, that's what this is on the far right. That is a Renaissance painting of Aaron saying, behold, um, the uh, um, golden calf. And what's that in the middle? Can everyone tell me? Bull on the stock market. So what do you think? Has man still got his emblems that he says is going to bring never-ending prosperity and happiness, always upward-moving prosperity and happiness to all of the globe? And it's not trust in God. It's these other type of, it's this other type of worship. Okay. This story is from Hudson Taylor. And he knew that he needed to get some things solidified in his heart before he went to be a missionary in China. And the things he felt he needed to solidify the most was trust in God. I sure am glad he got to the heart and root of that before he went into inland China. Because if anyone knows this story, it was going to require a radical level of trust. One of the pivotal moments before going to China that secured this trust was over the last bit of money that he had in his pocket. And I'd like to read that story to you. This is his own words. The Sunday was a very happy one. After attending divine service in the morning, my afternoons and evenings were filled with gospel work. In the various lodging houses, I was accustomed to visit in the lowest parts of the town. After concluding my last service about 10 o'clock that night, a poor man asked me to go and pray with his wife, saying that she was dying. I readily agreed, and on the way to his house, asked him why he had not sent for the priest, as his accent told me he was an Irishman. He had done so, he said, but the priest refused to come without a payment of 18 pence, which the man did not possess as the family was starving. Immediately it occurred to my mind that all the money I had in the world was this solitary half crown and that it was one coin. Moreover, that while the basin of water gruel I usually took for supper was awaiting me, and there was sufficient in the house for breakfast in the morning. I certainly had nothing for dinner on the coming day. Somehow or other, there was at once a stoppage of joy flowing in my heart. But instead of reproving myself, I began to reprove this poor man, telling him that it was very wrong to have allowed matters to get to such a state as he described, and that he ought to have applied to the relieving officer. His answer was that he had done so and was told to come at 11 o'clock the next morning, but that he feared that his wife might not live through the night. Ah, thought I, if only I had two shillings and a sixpence instead of this half crown. How gladly would I give these poor people one shilling of it, but to depart with the half crown was far from my thoughts. 
I little dreamed that the real truth of the matter simply was that I could not trust in God plus one and six pence, but was not yet prepared to trust him only without any money at all in my pocket. Up a miserable flight of stairs into a wretched room, he led me, and oh, what a sight there presented itself to my eyes. Four of the five poor children stood about, their sunken cheeks and temples all telling an unmistakable story of slow starvation. And lying on a wretched pallet was a poor, exhausted mother with a tiny infant 36 hours old, moaning rather than crying at her side. For it, seemed, it too seemed to be spent and failing. Ah, thought I, if I had two shillings and a sixpence instead of this half crown, how gladly should they have one of the sixpence? But still a wretched unbelief prevented me from obeying the impulse to relieve their distress at the cost of all that I possessed. It will scarcely seem strange that I was unable to say much to comfort these poor people. I needed comfort myself. I began to tell them, however, that they must not be cast down, and that though their circumstances were very distressing, there was a kind and loving Father in heaven. But something within me said, you hypocrite. Telling these unconverted souls about a kind and loving Father in heaven and not prepared yourself to trust him with a half crown? I was nearly choked. How gladly would I have compromised with conscience if I had florin and six pence. I would have given the florin thankfully and kept the rest, but I was not yet prepared to trust in God alone without the six pence. To talk was impossible under these circumstances. Yet, strange to say, I thought I would have no difficulty in praying. Prayer was a delightful occupation to me in those days. <laughs> Time thus spent never seemed wearisome, and I knew no lack of words. I seemed to think that all I should have to do is to kneel down and to engage in prayer, and that relief then would come to me and to them altogether. You asked me to come and pray with your wife, I said to him. Let us pray and kneel down. But scarcely had I opened my lips with our Father who art in heaven. Then conscience said within, dare you mock God? Dare you kneel down and call him Father with a half crown in your pocket? Such a time of conflict came upon me then as I have never experienced before or since. How I got through that form of prayer, I know not. And whether the words uttered were connected or disconnected, I cannot tell you. But I arose from my knees in the great distress of mind. The poor father turned to me and said, You see what a terrible state we are in, sir? If you can help us, for God's sake, do it. Just then the word flashed into my mind, Give to him that ask of thee. And in the word of a king, there is power. I put my hand into my pocket and slowly drawing forth the half crown, gave it to the man, telling him that it might seem a small matter for me to relieve him, seeing that I was comparatively well off, but that in parting with this coin, I was giving him my all.
What I had been trying to tell him was indeed true. God really was a father and might be trusted. The joy all came back in a full flood tide to my heart. I could say anything and feel it again. <laughs> and the hindrance to blessing was gone. God, I trust forever. Not only was this poor woman's life saved that day, but I realized that my life was saved too. It would have been a wreck as a Christian life had not grace at that time conquered and the striving of God's spirit been obeyed. I well remember how that night as I went home to my lodgings, my heart was as light as my pocket. The lonely, deserted streets resounded with a hymn of praise which I could not restrain. When I took my basin of gruel before retiring, I would not have exchanged it for a prince's feast. I reminded the Lord as I knelt at my bedside of his own word, that he who giveth to the poor lendeth to the Lord. I asked him to not let my loan go too long, or I should not have dinner the next day. And with peace within and peace without, I spent a happy, restful night. Next morning for breakfast, my plate of porridge remained. And before it was consumed, the postman knock was heard at the door. I was not in the habit of receiving letters on Monday, as my parents and most of my friends refrained from posting on Saturday, so that I was somewhat surprised when the landlady came in holding a letter or a packet in her wet hand covered by her apron, a letter from heaven. I looked at the letter but could not make out the handwriting. It was either a strange hand or a feigned one, and the postmark was blurred. Where it came from, I cannot tell. On opening the envelope, I found nothing written within, but inside a sheet of blank paper was folded a pair of kid gloves, from which, as I opened them, at astonishment, half a sovereign fell to the ground. Praise the Lord, I exclaimed, 400% for 12 hours of investing. Now that is good interest. How glad the merchants of whole would be if they could lend their money at such a rate. And I then... And there determined that a bank which could not break should have my savings and earnings, a determination I have not yet learned to regret. <laughs> <laughs>